New York City. Late 1700s. By candlelight, a woman frantically writes, a letter visible only by the utilization of flame or chemical. Invisible ink. The purpose of this letter? Invaluable intrigue that has the potential to change the tide of the war. Stalemate grips the raging American Revolution, and there is only one currency that might have the potential to alter the course of history in either force's favor. Information. And thus, the Culpa Ring is born. Tasked with infiltration and espionage, their secret organization now activated to aid in the defeat of the greatest empire the world has ever known. I'm Riley Osborne. This is my co-host, Ashton Myers. Today we're going to be going over the Culper Ring, which was a super important spy ring that did just that, affected the course of the war of the American Revolution. A couple ways to support us. Follow the podcast. Follow all of our socials at Human Histories Podcast. And also email us at humanhistoriespodcast at gmail.com. Ask us questions because every few episodes we're going to be doing some question and answer episodes. And we're also going to be going over where we get get things wrong. And we want to interact with you guys and we want you guys to be part of this this history podcast. So, um, yeah, Ashton, just summarize what this what this war was, what this culpa ring was. So the culpa ring was a spy ring formulated by uh, George Washington, Charles Scott and Benjamin Talmadge. Uh, it happened late 1778. This was after, well, essentially the Americans were losing the war. They were on their way out and the espionage they had been using was, for lack of a better word, absurd. Uh, imagine you, I don't know, imagine you need to go to the grocery store and pick up groceries so you send your kids, but only uh, 60% of the time they don't come back. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's essentially what was happening in the American Revolutionary War where you would have You'd have these generals in the Continental Army saying, hey, you, you look like a, an upstart. You look like you can get after it. Go to New York City. Try to gather this information. Go And basically, like, imagine the creepy dude in a trench coat leaning up against the wall outside the bowling alley. That's what these American spies were trying to do. British as well. They were, they were just trying to eavesdrop and observe and gain information. But there was a breakthrough when Benjamin Talmadge took over. And recruited a host of individuals uh, who we'll get to later in the podcast. But first, it's uh, it's necessary to explain what led to the American Revolution so we know why this culpering needed to be founded in the first place. And some people want to believe that it started earlier than this. Some people believe it happened later than this. But where I personally think, um, and, and let me... Let me be clear, seeing as this is the first episode in the first five minutes, we're going to use a lot of our opinions. Neither of us are historians. We're not, uh, it's not incumbent upon us to be academics and make sure that uh, everything is, um, I suppose, by the books clean because there's competing theories and we're going to go with the ones that make the most sense based on uh, what research we've done. And we just want to have a conversation too we want to make this kind of a bit more relaxed a bit more laid back you know um a conversation that we and even the listeners can sort of be part of so we're gonna we're gonna use a lot of opinion-based uh, information but we're gonna hop right into the fact that a lot of believe a lot of people think it started um with the seven years war which was it's really the end of a century-long conflict between the french and the british so, yeah, so what occurred there was the uh, both the French and the British were on in the Americas and, and Spain as well. Spain was primarily in Florida and the south. 
Um, but France was, you know, getting uppity in 1755, and they started expanding east towards British territory. Uh, the France, the French were primarily in Central America, not Central America like Latin America, America but of the country America, they were in the center. Um, and they wanted to start pushing east, where the British held territory. And this began in the Ohio Valley. And what occurred was they started building forts. The British were like, hey, we don't like that. And eventually there was a, as most wars start, it's not a, uh, it's not somebody planting a flag and the opponent planting a flag and saying, oh, just do battle. No, there's tensions, then the tensions erupt and either side needs to make a decision so that they don't appear as weak. So there was a conflict that arose. The British said, we're not going to stand for this because had they not, had they not took a stance right there, the French, the French would have just kept imposing on British territory and they would have just keep kept ceding territory to the French. But what happened, they said, hey, you're not going any further. That's it. This is war. And initially, the French were actually winning the war. They had a host of Native American allies. They were pushing back the British for the first year. But much to uh, France's dismay, they also must have forgotten that they were fighting wars all over the globe and that the British Empire was fighting against them all over the globe. And there was also other people that France was embroiled in conflict with, one of those being the Prussians. Um, and so what did the British do? Well, they used their sensibilities and said, hey, instead of us just beating our heads against the wall and sending all of these resources over to the Americas, why don't we just make France bankrupt from the home, right? So they supported the Prussians. The Prussians um, essentially beat all of France's allies and took it right to their doorstep where they had to concede. Uh, they had to concede in the American war as well. Uh, they basically ran out of resources, ran out of money, were losing conflicts. And yeah, but what that did, oh, and a fun fact there uh, that a lot of people don't realize is George Washington actually fought for the British against the French in this war. So George Washington, the uh, poster boy for the liberation of America, was actually uh, a French uh, military officer. He was a commissioned officer. Well, he so, wasn't a French military officer. Sorry. Yes, he was. He was. A, he was. A, he was an American military officer uh, under the guy uh, under the uh, I guess control of the British. Um, but that's that's an important point because um, the I guess the seeds of distaste for the British began really early. They began even while the Americans were working with them, and this is something that uh, a lot of people don't realize that the British colonies were actually like the American colonies were established in 1607, and the American Revolution occurred in 1775. So that's what is that? Two or three generations of colonists before revolution actually I mean, occurred. I mean, more than that, it would have been five or six generations because people. I don't know how long a generation. People weren't is. living that long. People <laughs> yeah. weren't living that long back then, and people had babies a lot sooner. It's really important to note too what you said is when we're talking when we say the British and the French are fighting in North America, we really mean the British are using American colon colonials as their soldiers, right? Like you said, Washington was fighting for the British. So when you say, oh, the British are fighting the French, it's it's a lot of these guys are American Americans that are fighting with the British under British rule. Um, and they're not yet Americans, right? They're still British. But I don't know how Americans would feel about that. Well, the, 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 they were they were separate, right? In the sense that it, it's the American colonies, right? So yeah. they viewed themselves. They were British, but they were colonists. They weren't like homeland British, right? Um but yeah, so the, the, the seeds of disdain for the British Empire began early for George Washington and many like him in the uh, serving in the Seven Years' War. And that was because there would be battle-tested officers such as George Washington with three, four, five battles under their belt. They had spilled blood. They had seen blood spilled on their side. They had lost their friends. And yet you'd get this newly commissioned green um, 
British officer fresh off the boat walking in, and all of a sudden now he was the authority. So you have these boots on the ground of the American troops who, you know, they fought for the king. They, they recognized themselves as, yes, they were subjects of the British, but they viewed themselves as loyal to the British, and so they expected to be treated equal to the British. But as we see throughout all of history with the British, they're very arrogant, and they think they're better than everybody else. And if you come from the mainland island, you, or not mainland island, it's an oxymoron. If you come from the island, you're... Uh, you're better than everybody. It doesn't matter if they're your colonists. Doesn't matter if they're the most influential person in that colony. You, you know, you you were born on British soil, so you're the you're the you're the winner in this instance, and uh, that's what happened. The George Washington. There's multiple letters of him uh, sending to his comrades, expressing his frustration that he's not not seen as an equal. He has more time, more experience, puts in more work, is loyal to the king, is fighting for the king, yet he's treated as a second class citizen. Um, Anyway, uh, after the Seven Years' War, you know, because war is expensive, the British were incredibly in debt. They were, I think it was about 132,600,000 in debt. So they, over the course of the seven years, they doubled their national debt. Yeah, it um, was, they were $50 million more in debt after this con- conflict, which is like, like you said, it's, they almost doubled their debt. Like they were euros, super in the debt. Yeah, well, pounds. Euros. Yeah. Um, pa- yeah, yeah. Yeah. The euro didn't exist. Um, yeah. But, Whoops. but I mean... And so not only do we have to compound the value of how inflation's happened, but you also have to consider that it's not the American dollar, it's the pound, which is worth more than the American dollar. So it's it's super expensive. It's been unbelievably expensive. And something that's really important to note is not only was it expensive, but once the war ended, the French and the Spanish got really awesome little islands in the Caribbean that were pumping out a metric crapload of money in sugar. And North America, realistically, considering how big it was, wasn't making nearly as much money as it as as the French and the Spanish were from their colonies that they got even after losing the war. So it was weird. The British, like, it was kind of a lose-lose this war was for them, even though they technically won. So they needed to get money back. Yes, they did. And that's where, uh, you know, the British decided to start implementing all of these acts and taxes upon the colonists. And, you know, this, it might not seem remarkable, given that on the British island, um, I guess the, the, the mainland subjects will just go with mainland. Uh, they, they were being taxed up to 25%. Like they, they were being taxed so heavily that they, they were used to it, but it was expected because a lot of those were landowners and they had opportunity and they were recognized as first class citizens. So there was a lot of the a lot of the positives to go along with that that made the taxation easier to swallow. Um, but in the Americas, they had yet to have a tax imposed on them by the British. And that's that's an important word. The operative word here is imposed because they were self-governing, or so they thought. The 13 colonies, that's where the whole idea of freedom and liberty comes from, so deeply rooted in America, is that they wanted to be autonomous. And these these acts, and I'll list them briefly, there's the Sugar Act, wherein they basically said, the British said, hey, you're no longer going to be able to take molasses and sugar, etc. from the Dutch, from the France, from the French, I keep messing that up, from Spain. Uh, you're only going to take it from us. And also, by the way, you're not going to be able to export to those countries as well. So you're only importing from us and you're only exporting to us. So what that did, naturally, it created a monopoly on British product, which, you know, that's never a good thing. Uh, but, but it's worth noting that because there was a monopoly, it's a bit of a, a messy economic situation. There was a monopoly, monopoly where the British were able to reduce the price of the goods because there was, they were the sole proprietor of the goods, but they also imposed a tax on the goods once it made it to America. So maybe they'd say normally it was uh, 
six pounds for a, uh, a pound of sugar. We'll just use arbitrary figures. Uh, and you get those that one pound of sugar and all you paid was six pounds. But instead what occurred was they'd say, hey, it's three pounds for a pound of sugar. Hey, we're helping you out. And then you get the sugar and they tax you five pounds, right? So you're at a net loss of minus two pounds, right? Um, and, and that's that's kind of frustrating, right? That's And they were used to this because there was the Molasses Act of 1733 that was still in place. The Sugar Act basically just built upon that. But it was still a, a moment of, oh, wait a minute. Like they're, they're using us to enrich themselves and the british the british did this with the justification that well hey we just saved you guys from the french so you kind of owe us right um but after the sugar act there was also the stamp act and this one didn't last nearly as long as the sugar act and you can imagine why they essentially said hey uh, you're buying that stack of paper you're buying that you have a receipt uh, you have shipping logs you're buying a card of playing a deck of playing cards well, we're going to put our stamp on that and you're going to pay us every single time we stamp something, right? So not only did all of these companies then have to purchase watermarked stamping, stampable paper from the British, they also now had to pay, the consumer had to pay an extra tax per piece of paper that they got that was stamped, right? Uh, that only lasted about a year and a bit before the colonies were like, hey man, like I've, I've had about enough of this, right? But it was a Pyrrhic victory and a Pyrrhic victory is... Uh, it essentially means that you you won the battle or sorry you won the war um but at what cost right you you lost essentially right you expended all of your effort and now you have nothing left right so you won you, you won uh, air quotations um and that's seen by the declaratory declaratory act that the british passed which basically said oh hey so you know how we just gave you guys the sugar act and now we just did the stamp act and you guys weren't happy about that uh well Here's another one, right? So now we're basically telling you, hey, we'll get rid of the Stamp Act, but we're letting you know right now, any and all legislation we want to impose upon you, you can't stop us. We're going to do it. Um, sorry, that's the way it is. We're the British. Um, and so you can imagine being a colonist uh, who never had an internal presence or an external presence making you pay, uh, making you give up your hard-earned money, telling you that you can only import or export goods from them. And now all of a sudden, all of those things are occurring, right? Now you're being taxed out the, the yin-yang. You're being told, hey, this is where the money, like this is where your goods are going to come from and whatnot. And of course, you know, there's there's so many of these acts I could go on all day about them. Uh, last one I'll mention was the Townsend Act. Um, and this basically proves the point that they were taxing any and everything that they could get their hands on that they knew the Americans needed. Townsend Act essentially taxed paint, lead, paper, tea, um, Essentials for living, right? General merchandise. Uh, all of these things culminated in a act of resistance, which was the Boston Tea Party. Uh, we're not going to get into that today, though, just because that's an entire episode in and of itself. But the premise of the Boston Tea Party and what it signified was, uh, and you'll see this theme a lot when you look at um, important thinkers around the American Revolution, and that was taxation without representation. So being in Canada, imagine if, you know, imagine if well, for, for all of our Albertan friends, uh, Jason Kenney told you, hey, you know what? Um, I don't like the look of those guys over there in Saskatchewan, right? They don't have a say in this policy, but we're going to tax them, right? And somehow he was able to. I know this is far-fetched because our political systems have developed to the point where that's unreasonable now. But say Jason Kenney was the big honcho in the area and he had a big military force, bigger than British Columbia, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Ontario combined. So he just walked into Saskatchewan and said, you people are going to pay me, right? And they said, well, we don't have a say in this matter. We, we, this, we, we have nothing to do with this industry. Why do we have to pay you? And he said, because I said so, right? So now you're, you're a subject. You're no longer an autonomous colonist who is hoping for independence. You're a subject. Um, 
And worthy of note, there was two classes, and this will come up later in the podcast. Uh, there was two classes of people, essentially. Um, not classes, more classifications. There was the loyalists and the patriots. So the loyalists were often older, uh, more mature men, established property owners, business owners, so maybe modern-day conservatives. Um, and the patriots were the often younger, um, more of a belief in liberty, wanted autonomy, and the patriots were the ones who fought for independence, whereas the loyalists, some some accused them of simply being procrastinators and lazy because they just assumed, well, you know, the British are going to take care of us. They'll give us some independence eventually if we're just good boys, right? If we just sit here and do what they say, they're gonna they're gonna help us out eventually, right? So they were they were the safer ones. They had you could say they had something to lose in their in their businesses and their their family fortunes and whatnot, whereas the patriots were just like kind of just militiamen they were just there and they're like you know what? i'm tired of this like I, I i can't i can't reach the level of these loyalists because this crushing boot of britain is sitting is standing on my neck right and that leads us into 1774 1775 where there's the declaration of independence and the first uh first first congress essentially and um then the war begun in 1776 yeah i mean an uh, important note you hit there was it's taxation without representation so the Americans are getting taxed to build a road in Britain that they'll never see and never walk on. Do you know what I mean? It's like getting taxed. It's like getting getting property tax or income tax. And then you see that it just goes to freaking some completely different country that you're not invested in. Because like you said, they've been, like the colonists have been here since 1607, right? Is that what you said? 1607? 1607, yes. Yeah. So like they don't they don't care. It's been 150 years. They don't have a direct... Um, loyalty to Britain. A lot of them don't. Um, yeah, and, and 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 then once the war starts, Britain's winning, right? Britain's winning most of the major comp, uh, um, battles. So the war started now. Britain's winning most of the major battles. They need to... They need a trump card. They need to develop something that's going to sway the tide of the conflict. Before we get there, I do I do want to mention one thing briefly that kind of ties in the entirety of uh, that previous segment, I suppose, and that was the reason why the the Americans had this autonomy um, was a policy the British implemented uh, a policy I do air quotes because it was kind of more of a, a a tacit agreement it went without saying and that was salutary neglect. So the British essentially said, hey, you know what? Uh, as long as you guys are loyal to us, as long as you help us out when we need you to, as long as you do this and that. Um, we'll kind of leave you alone, right? We'll, we'll let you be, we, you know, you do your thing. So this was called salutary neglect. And the Americans were used to this, as Riley just said, for 150 years, right? 150 years or more. And then all of a sudden things change, right? It's like, imagine you're, you're, I don't know, you're, you get out of your mom's house when you're 18 and now you're 34 and all of a sudden your mom needs to move back in with you and she's telling you, you got a curfew at 9 PM, right? You're like, excuse me, right? Like I've Dude, been, I've been, one. Yeah, like I'm going, I've been going out and hitting the clubs till 1 a.m. every morning. And now you're telling me I got to come back here and pay you for my tea. Excuse me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you're not going to be happy. You are, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know you, bro. I just won your war for you, you know? Yeah, and and exactly. whereas the British are like, we won the war for you. And they're like, okay, yeah. buddy, were yeah. you here? Yeah. Um, British, British arrogance is, uh, it's, it is so permanent. Like it, it just, it permeates through so much in history, how they like, you, like, to not get sidetracked too much, look at World War One, man. Look at the callous loss of life simply because the people who, the brass that, you know, we know better than you. doesn't matter if you're on the ground and you're watching your friends die. We know better, right? We won so many wars, right? And yeah, that's what happens when you win for 300 straight years. You know what I mean? It just develops a, a weird sense of, of um, elitism, maybe. Um, but yeah, let's get into 
like, let's hop into it. Let's hop into the war started, right? Um, Washington lost a lot of the major conflicts at the start of the war. And Britain has New York. And New York is their most important supply line. They're bringing in a lot of supplies, a lot of new troops. And Washington sort of is, he's surrounded New York with people that are loyal to him. And they both know that if one side attacks the other, if one side attacks um, each other's supply lines, they're going to be dealing major blows. So they're at this kind of like stalemate right now. It's winter time, and and espionage is failing pretty pretty drastically at this point. Um, so George Washington has established he he established this guy named Nathaniel Sackett. And he wanted Nathaniel Sackett to develop a network of civilian informants, but it didn't really last long. Nathaniel Sackett, he, he frankly, he failed to garner any relevant intelligence. So he gets another another buddy, Major General Charles Scott, and he's like, okay, you're in charge of espionage. And he delegates a lot of this legwork to Benjamin Talmadge, who's important and who we'll get to later. But they're still trying this old school um, tactic where they're just sending guys in without much of a backstory, without without any long-term uh, game plan, and they're just sending them into these, like, dangerous situations to try to get information. And Scott's losing three out of five spies he's sending to New York City. So to give you reference for that, if imagine if someone came to you and was like, hey, man, your job is to go on missions that have 60% failure rates, and we're going to keep sending you until you inevitably fail. Because he doesn't have this plethora of spies. And spies failure are... means a horrible death. Oh, yeah. Failure means they, they cut off all your fingers and then hang you up from a tree. Like that that level of failure is so is so unbelievably it's it's just it's unbelievably un um you can't maintain it, what I'm trying to say is is you can't maintain that level of failure. Un- unsustainable. And so as his spies are dying, he's running out of spies because not only do people not want to work with him, but when you develop a spy, it's one of your most trusted guys. You can't just pick up a random guy off the street and hope he's going to be a spy for you, especially in a, in a conflict like this where you don't know where loyalties are exactly. So he's got, get, he's got a limited amount of spies. He's got a limited amount of spies and they're all, they're all dying. So this is where we need a new... Uh, a new breed of espionage, a new form of espionage tactics, which is really where this cult perspiring comes into play. This is this is the the bread and butter, and and um, yeah, it's worth it's worth it's worth noting that uh, who we mentioned to uh, mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Benjamin Talmadge, who was in charge of the cult ring, um, one of his close childhood friends that he actually went to Yale with, so a classmate throughout his four years in university, was one of the casualties of this failure of espionage. He. Um, he was he was essentially you could say the the final straw right the the straw that broke the camel's back. He was sent into New York uh, in September of 1778 for an espionage mission as he would his name Nathan Hale I'm not sure if I mentioned his name and he was caught and he was hung and this that was the moment where Washington kind of decided okay enough is enough Charles Scott this isn't working you're not the one that's you're not the you're not the guy you're not the guy Nathaniel Sackett wasn't the guy Charles Scott not the guy Benjamin Talmadge you know Yale graduate um, gifted man who was a major in the second continental dragoons by the time he was what 22 23 and that's an important thing to note is these aren't established men these aren't men who were in their 50s and 60s Benjamin Talmadge was in his 20s when he when he during the revolutionary war he started the culpa ring when he was 26 27 um, so they're they're relatively young like me 
I'm I'm about I'm turning 25 soon, right? And I can't imagine the I, I, the the stressors and the just the ingenuity you need to possess to be able to will this into reality, right? Um, but yeah, yeah, they're they, developing they're developing almost from scratch an entirely new way of spying, and it's a way of spying that we still use today. So this is really revolutionary. Um, not to use a pun, but I did just use a pun. But these guys are they're revolutionary, uh, revolutionizing espionage. And they're doing it because of these, these past failures. So after the death of um, Nathan Hale, Talmadge, George Washington, they convene and they decide that Talmadge is now in charge of, of espionage. And r- right away, Talmadge gets to it, man. He starts developing the cult perspiring. And he recruits um, Caleb Brewster, who's a childhood friend. And then he recruits uh, Abraham Woodhull, who becomes, like, without a doubt, the most important member of the spy ring. Yeah, number one. Yeah. He was the guy. And Abraham Woodhull was his neighbor, which is interesting. We'll uh, we'll get into the, the significance of his recruitment uh, soon here, but... Uh, it's pretty fascinating how how it happened. It's it it seems like something out of a movie. It makes sense why AMC made a four four season uh, uh, docu series historical drama on the Culper Ring. Um, it's yeah, it's it's it, reality is often stranger than fiction. That's all I can really say. Yeah, and uh, and something I want to say quickly is I'm going to abridge the mission statement of the Culper Ring from George Washington. So Culper Junior. To remain in the city, to collect all useful information he can to do, this he should mix as much as possible among the officers and refugees, visit the coffee houses and all public places. He is to pay particular attention to the movements by land and water in and about the city, especially the number of men destined for the defense of the city, endeavoring to designate the particular corps and where each is posted, the state of provisions, forage and fuel to be attended to as also the health and spirits of the army, navy, and city. There can be scarcely any need of recommending the greatest caution and secrecy in a business so critical and dangerous. The following seems to be the best general rules. To entrust none but the person fixed upon to transmit the business, to deliver to deliver the dispatches to none upon our side but those who shall be pitched upon for the purpose of receiving them, and to transmit them and any intelligence that may be obtained to no one but the commander-in-chief. So if you guys were doubting how important this culper ring is, they're reporting directly to George Washington. He's giving them their mission statements directly. He's the busiest man in the world. And these are the guys he's talking to. And important things to note here that we'll go into more detail, though. He wants to know about the Army, Navy, and City. He wants to know about the the morale. So he wants to know how these guys are feeling. Because as we know, man, this is a, this is a, a war of opinions a lot of the time and and they want to change people's opinions they want to know how new york's uh, feeling hearts and, and minds and what i'm trying to tie into is that's where the recruiting for the culper ring comes in it comes from people that are inside the city that want to be part of change that want to be part of um a movement uh to defeat the british and and that's when they start recruiting so he, so benjamin talmage goes in and he recruits abraham woodhull it's it's before we before we get into uh, Abraham Woodhull, um, that that mission statement, what it says, a big part of that mission statement is, it's asking 
the people that's asking the members of the cult ring to embed themselves within the civilian populace. So don't just be, you know, don't, don't make, don't stick out like a sore thumb, go to the coffee houses and maybe you'll overhear a, a, a British gentleman mention something. Maybe it's a businessman, but he mentioned something like, oh, there's a large shipment of this coming in and you know that, well, that's peculiar. And I know that's a provision for warfare. Why is that coming in? Right? Maybe it's gunpowder, right? But maybe it's a, maybe it's not gunpowder. Maybe it's a necessary ingredient for gunpowder. That's intrigue. That's relevant information because why else would there be such a great movement of uh, warfare material to New York, right? Obviously, because there's going to be assault soon. So now they now they know what to look for. Um, and, and not only that, but uh, you can imagine, um, speaking as a man, I know, uh, and my buddy Riley, we, we both have egos, right? And I like to think that him and I are pretty good at maintaining our egos, but some men aren't. And especially at this point, as we alluded to earlier with the British and their egos, men like to talk, right? So now imagine you're a, you know, fresh off the boat officer from the Queen's, one of the Queen's regiments uh, coming to fight the Americans and quell this rebellion underfoot. And you go to the pub and you have a couple drinks and your lips start getting a little loose. And you, you think, well, we're in New York. This is British controlled. I can say what I want to say. I'm comfortable, right? What are they going to, if they're a spy, we'll catch him and we'll hang him, right? And, you know, your arrogance yeah. is, your arrogance they're trying is. To, they're they're going to be trying to prove themselves as well. Oh, dude. Exactly. Well, I've come here with 575 soldiers and then, you know, the culprit ring guys in the background, like 575 soldiers. What's, what's the unit you're in exactly? You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. Um, so that it's, which is a, it's, but what's important to know there is that's a totally different style of espionage than, than what they've been doing before. Exactly. They're, they're listening. sit in a coffee house. They, they weren't doing that. Yep. It's, 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 it's observation. It's eavesdropping. It's just, it's listening, right? It's, it's being a part of the picture instead of being like, imagine, imagine you, I don't know, you want, you you want to blend in, right? Like we'll use a ghillie suit for an example. I don't know. I'm sure many of you guys have probably played uh, call of duty four or any other call of duty. And if you have, don't have military experience, that's why I reference it. Uh, you know, the big thing that the dudes dress up in, that's all green, right? You wear that so you don't stick out like a sore thumb in, in the surroundings, right? If you had a sniper in, in, in a woodland who was wearing hot pink, right? <laughs> that man's getting found like that and he's taken care of, right? If you have a sniper in a woodland who's dressed up in woodland colors and he knows what he's doing, he's not going to get found, right? So essentially that's what was happening with the these civilian patriots as they were referenced uh, in New York City. They were they were blending in with the populace. They were behaving like British. Many of them actually swore British allegiance to the king. Uh, some of them wrote pro-British propaganda. Uh, anything they could to garner the trust of those around them, right? Because oh, he's one of us. He's one of the good guys, right? We can we can trust this guy. We can we can let loose and relax and not be on guard around him. Um, and maybe they didn't think that consciously, but it was a subconscious thought because, again, they're in British-controlled New York. And there are a lot of American loyalists who want the British to succeed because they think that the British will hand them their independence one day. And they suspect that this rebellion is going to fail and that the failure of this rebellion means that there's never going to be independence. So they'd rather be on the, the winning side of history as it was, as opposed to fighting and willing what you want into existence. So they're, they're simply this, again, back to the whole how they're procrastinators. They're, they're uh, freedom procrastinators. They don't want to go and seize it. They don't want to put themselves at risk. They'd rather somebody else take that risk and wait until it's handed to them, right? So that's, that's that's where this that's where this works is you you have this controlled territory you have locals who are loyal to this the, the I guess the current rulers of this controlled territory being the British being the crown and now you have somebody who might dis have this the most disdain for all of these people sneaking in and saying hey I'm one of you guys all right business as usual let's just keep rolling with it right I'm I'm just here man all right I'm just having a coffee 
You know what I'm saying? I'm just getting my getting my grande mocha whatever, you know? I'm, I'm just visiting my sister, which was legitimately one of the, the, the tools they used. Um, and so we're establishing that these guys are doing long-term embedded espionage. And we'll get over the individuals in a second, but I want to I wanna go over how cool the encoding of the messages was. Um, Benjamin Talmadge, who's now in charge of the Culper Ring, as we as we said a second ago, Benjamin Talmadge, he came up with a, a Culper code book, and it contained 763 different numbers, and they all meant different words, and and the different combinations meant different words, and he 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 took this. Uh, it was like another level of secrecy of the Culper Ring's communications, because even if these guys are getting caught, the enemy can't decode their messages because it's this deep, intense code. Um, I mean, hopefully, hopefully, thankfully, no one did get caught um, in the early stages of the Culper Ring because realistically, in my opinion, man, it doesn't matter how good your code is. If you get caught and you know the code, they're going to they're going to break that code, which was crazy because a lot of the guys that were ended up being messengers didn't know the code. But it, it, it didn't start like that. It started a bit a bit rocky with how they were doing it. And it, it really came down to. Um, trial and error right these guys figured out figured it out as they went and they upgraded their level of secrecy with the codes where they started using invisible ink which is literally dude that's like movie stuff where they're using invisible ink code it's it's this crazy code in invisible ink and then they have another letter written over it so and then the letter is hidden in some like random like boat that they're using to transport it down to to whoever they're sending it to so they've got they they develop slowly but surely like three or four layers of secrecy to how they're getting these messages across, which is unbelievably badass. And the invisible ink was the way it'd be utilized, like Riley said. You, you maybe you'd you'd write a normal letter, you know, hey mom, how are you? And then in between it'd be kill the British, kill the British, kill the British. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, like you would, you, it was uh, what was how do I put this? It was it was just it was simple chemistry, right? Because you would have you would you would write with maybe ferrous sulfate, right? Um, and I'm not going to get into the chemistry of ferrous sulfate, but you would write in ferrous sulfate, and then you would just wash over it with sodium carbonate, and all of a sudden those letters are revealed. Or you would use a substance that burns differently, right? Maybe it readily burns, so you you'd gently take a candle flame above the letter, and those letters like the normal letters would stay there, and you know they'd be there, but the letter the message that you wanted to send, and it doesn't need to be a long message. Bear that in mind. It could simply be. Uh, British on way to Yorktown, right? Done. That's all you need to say. That's it takes about a week, right? So you need to they haste was important here, but it would burn those letters brightly. So it would burn, uh, I don't know, uh four five eight for overrun, um, seven two seven New York, right? So then that's how they would share that message. Um also worth noting is that it wasn't just the Americans that were using invisible ink. The British, the British didn't have quite the same level of embedded espionage as the Americans did. They were more reliant on misinformation, trying to get letters saying, well, we're going to just go up to Canada. We're done here, right? Get those into George Washington's hands. So he'd be like, all right, good, roger that. And then all of a sudden the British are running over every establishment in the country. Um, but yeah, they, they, they also used invisible ink. They also had their forms of uh, espionage and couriers. And as Riley said, they, they'd hide them in specific places, right? Maybe they'd hollow out the quill of a pen or they would stuff it into a button of a child's shirt who's traveling with his mother. And then, you know, the button falls off and a man picks it up and that's that. Um, and one other way that they concealed messages, which is, it's, it's incredible. As Riley was saying, the levels of secrecy, the layers here, right? They would sometimes, so it would be a normal message, 
with invisible ink, but of that invisible ink message, only some of it was relevant, and you would have a shaped mask, right? So maybe it was a, a diamond or a square or not a square paper, it was a rectangle, so that wouldn't really make sense, but maybe a triangle, right? And you would put that, you would maybe there'd be a word that signifies where to put the point, the bottom point of the triangle, and then there's a word to signify where to put the other two points, and you put the triangle on that point, and now this, the information within that triangle is the only relevant actionable intelligence. Right. So it's just layers upon layers of it really, really cool stuff. Honestly, like you again, like I said, reality is often stranger than fiction. This this stuff makes sense. But I mean, you, you don't think of it. Right. You don't think of the the deep, dark, clandestine back back door, you know, back alley meetings and message drops. And uh, uh, yeah, it's like, like another like dead drops. Right. That's another method they would use. So you see this in movies right? you see this in kids movies like. You know, the, the FBI is sitting there in their, their van down the road and they're like, uh, sub, uh, subject is uh, approaching approaching drop zone, right? And the guy puts a McDonald's bag in the garbage can and they go and get this guy, but it turns out it was just Joey from down the block getting rid of his McDonald's bag. And they thought it was actually, I don't know, the, the leader of the Zeta cartel putting a big bag of cash in there, right? They, they would do that as well. They would, you know, maybe you'd be sitting there sipping your coffee or having your tobacco pipe and you would see a gentleman walk by and he maybe had a certain signifier that you knew. Maybe he had, a, a, maybe he had everybody had feathers maybe everybody had their big goofy hats but this guy had a little sigil on his hat and you, you're you're drinking you're not drawing attention you notice the sigil okay you're watching you're drinking and he walks by and maybe he he brushes up against somebody and stumbles and as he stumbles something falls to the ground and you know or maybe he he goes down an alley and puts something he as he's walking down the alley you think it looks just trash he puts it down um that's your that's your cue, right? That's intelligence. That's that's a letter that you need to go and grab and bring to whoever is going to transport that, whether that be, you know, as we'll get to Austin Rowe or Caleb Brewster or, or what have you. But uh, yeah, the ring was founded in 1778. So this was it wasn't a last ditch effort, but it was something that Washington viewed as very necessary for the success of the war because in all accounts they were losing. Um, a little fun fact about it as well. George Washington, his birth state was Virginia, and the name's Culper Ring. It's not. It's nothing really significant. It's literally from the a, a county where he was born, uh, not the county he was born in, but near to where he was born, called Culpeper County, Virginia. So that's just a, a little fun fact leading into uh, the individuals of the Culper Ring, which uh, Riley will uh, share with you guys right now. So yeah, so we've gone over who's like who really runs it. The people that are at the top of the Culver Ring are, are George Washington and <clears throat> they're George Washington and Benjamin Talmadge. But Benjamin Talmadge and George Washington, they're really the, just the facilitators of the Culver Ring. They're not actually... <laughs> George Washington is not going into New York City and doing some investigative stuff. Imagine George Washington's the guy sitting at the coffee shop and they're like, bro, aren't you George Washington? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, no, it's... He, they have to recruit guys that are members of the community, civilian patriots, how we're talked, we talked about earlier. So Benjamin Talmadge, he, he recruits Abraham Woodhull. And Abraham Woodhull becomes the, the, the cornerstone of the Culper Ring. He becomes the, the major player of the Culper Ring. And he's the guy who really starts everything off. And he, he served as, uh, he served as a, a lieutenant in, in the Suffolk County Militia. He was only there for a couple months. Um, didn't really do anything. However, that just that shows that he's he's motivated to be. He's in the um, game. He's in the game. He he's not he's not with the British business right now, and and he was a he was a school teacher, was he not, for a little bit? Uh, Woodhull. Yeah, uh, I believe so. Yes, uh, Talmadge and Nathan Hale actually were as well. They were all school teachers because that was kind of the in that time. 
And that time there was no like, well, I'm going to go to Yale and get an engineering degree and go work in the oil field, right? No, it was, I'm going to go get a degree and I'm going to go educate people, right? And that was an esteemed position because you had a bunch of poor colonists who were farmers, right? Um, worthy of note with Abraham Woodhill, uh, Woodhull, he did serve in the militia. He did leave. Um, a lot of his compatriots joined the Continental Army right out the get-go. He decided to bide his time. And it's fortunate that he did because it's, again... It's an incredible sequence of events that led him to fall into Talmadge's hands. Um, but something that will become relevant later was the fact that his cousin, uh, who was a brigadier general of the New York militia, was captured in battle against the British. And, you know, um, gentlemen's rules, right? When you, you at least keep your captor, your, your captors, or sorry, your um, the captured alive. But what instead happened with him is he was suffering cut wounds. He was suffering all kinds of wounds. Uh, and they essentially let him to, left him to die. They didn't give him any proper medical care. They didn't give him any food or water. They let his wounds fester and he died a horrible, horrible death. And Woodhull was informed of that. And you, you could imagine how you would feel if your brother, your sister, your cousin, somebody you grew up with. And, and these times, like nowadays, like my cousins live in BC. My cousins live in, you know, some, some in Edmonton, some around Edmonton area. I don't see them a lot. I don't talk to them a lot. They're not as, I don't want to say relevant because that's the wrong term. They're, they're not a cornerstone to my survival. Right. But in these times, like your cousins were like, it, your families work together, right? Like you, this was still like, let's not forget that just a little bit east of here was the pilgrims trudging through America trying to get to Oregon and whatnot, right? This was, these were hard times and these were hard people. So you needed your families to survive. They, they helped each other out. So imagine somebody you grew up with and you struggled with, uh, you found out who, who you loved. Uh, dies a terrible, terrible death. Well, that's probably going to galvanize you to want to tear down the British Empire, right? Yeah. So that's what, I mean, realistically, there's not any real evidence that that's exactly what happened. But what's more important is that's what Woodhull thinks happened. Um, his cousin could have just got smoked on the battlefield and then this was just some story that was told to him. Doesn't matter. That's what he believes. So that's probably one of the major turning points in him as a, as a um, patriot. Exactly. And so, so Whittle starts sort of um, doing this stuff as his own, uh, on his own. He's not only uh, transporting the messages himself, he's not only coding the messages himself, but he's also getting the information himself. And it doesn't last very long that he's doing this because um, Woodhull, he has he, his cover story is, oh, I'm visiting my sister and I'm bringing in some goods and it's kind of paper thin. And after a couple, a couple times, the British are starting to, to get an idea of what's going on. He's going in, he's, he's visiting his sister and her husband, and they're, they're working in what's called the Underhill Boarding House. And he'd, he'd use the Underhill Boarding House as his primary source of um, information gathering, and because and, a lot of people, a lot of British soldiers would come here. And it's also assumed that him and his family actually had some pretty solid connections with uh, either important loyal, loyalists or... Um, or important, just if you're listening, I did air quotes there on the loyalists, uh, and, and also other uh, British officers. So he's gaining information slowly but surely. And then at one point, Woodhull, he, he, as, he as his, his cover slowly starts to deteriorate, um, he has this one point where he's nearly fed up with the spy game. And he has this, he had written that the travel to and from New York was this nerve-wracking affair and it left his life super anxious and he was in this constant state of anxiety 
and he he gets robbed by highwaymen on the way like it's not even a safe road let alone spying you know you know like the the travel to go do something dangerous is super dangerous and so he he starts to realize that he needs to establish a bigger network of people and he needs to um, delegate his command which is a pretty difficult thing to do when you're establishing a spy ring because you got to get people that you like trust trust and this is where this is where guys like Robert Townsend, who in my opinion is the single most important member of the spy ring, come into play. And yeah, I'm I'm, I'm not actually going to go on to Townsend yet, but it's 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 super important to recognize that he has to establish a spy ring that's not only loyal to the Americans, but loyal to himself. Because every time you're reaching out to someone new, you're exposing yourself. So he's got he's to have a super detailed understanding of the people that he's talking to and the people that he's, he's recruiting. And he's living in this constant state of anxiety. He's almost been caught multiple times. And he's, he's, he's kind of over it. And he, he wants to move on. Yeah. And the little, a literal meaning of pick your poison, right? Because it could be the one that's innocuous and just leaves you with an upset stomach. Or it could be the one that, you know, you're, you're choking on your own vomit in moments, right? Um, and as Riley said, he, he had he had been caught multiple times and he had exhausted his uh he had exhausted his re- exhausted his resources in in the attempts to try and um get the british off his tail and some of those were he declared an allegiance to the crown publicly in uh Setauket, where he was from he was a you know he he tried to make it known hey you know what i'm i'm a, i'm i'm a loyalist i'm against the i'm against the patriots i i want to work for this but you know at, at that point um if suspicion is on you, um, men aren't stupid, uh, especially military men that are officers. They're going to, as he said, paper thin. They're going to see right through that and say, this guy's, he's looking for a cover, right? And there was, uh, there was a couple of near misses with him. He, uh, at a point, he, he had people come to his home. There was a, a colonel on, uh, who was wintering in Setauket who went and basically ravaged his home. And fortunately, we, by the grace of God, again, just these crazy little coincidences he was in new york right so he was in new york when these people came to try to arrest him and that would have been it that's abraham woodhull he's done um but he was in new york and at that point that was one of those turning points where he's like holy i'm almost died like four times like i'm kind of getting out of this right i'm kind of tired of this um fortunately he did have connections in satoket and there was a loyalist a prominent loyalist who uh, Woodhull was able to convince uh, to clear his name essentially uh, and bear in mind he was able to do this it wasn't like this loyalist knew he was a patriot this loyalist thought Woodhull was a loyalist right but the British had his suspicions of him so there was it wasn't it wasn't black or white where everybody knew that he was a loyalist and they were just waiting to get him or a patriot a lot of people genuinely believed due to his uh, declaration of allegiance to the crown uh due to his you know his transport to and from uh new york from his camaraderie and fraternizing with the british that he was a loyalist through and through. yeah well what's well, important to note with what you're saying with with he was a loyalist and when you said earlier he exhausted his resources what we mean by resources is we mean his connections in the city with people that don't know he's a spy and that's why that's so important is a lot of people sometimes think that when we say um it's a spy ring and, and blah, 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 like everyone's in on it. But it's in reality, it's it's Abraham Woodhull's in on it and his 10 buddies that he's convinced that he's uh, uh, loyal to the crown, they're not in on it. So if, 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 you, if you think that he can keep going back to his, 
his buddy here and being like, hey, man, can you tell everybody that I'm good to go? Like that that's exhausted after he does it once. If he goes back to the guy, that guy three times and the dude's like, why Suspicion. am I bailing you out right now? Hold up. No. Wait a minute. What are so you up to? This is the straw that breaks the camel's back. This is where Woodhull's like, all right, no, I'm done going into New York City every every week. I'm done, you know, getting my own hands dirty because he's no longer realistically he's no longer going to be a good spy if he's getting caught over and over again and this is where he brings in robert townsend who's living in remember how we said about that boarding house robert townsend was living in that boarding house with woodhull's sister that's how he he knew that he could trust this guy because he developed um a pretty extensive relationship with him and his sister knew him really well from living together so he's able to recruit robert townsend who is in my opinion like the man and robert townsend he's this dry goods merchant and he's living in the red light district in New York. It's where he lives 24-7. And they realize that it's a lot better to establish a couple messengers and have a guy stay there 24-7 than to have Woodhull coming in and out of the city. It's a lot less, um, it's a lot more conspicuous. And the alibi's there, right? Because where is Woodhull, like you said? Dude, I live coming, here. What do you, yeah, there yeah, is exactly. no alibi, he's, right? He's, he's, like, coming, he's coming in and out, whereas Townsend, like, it's all, it makes a lot more sense, um, it's silly, but it makes a lot more sense to go to, uh, so go f- like out of New York and back into New York than it go- than it mean that it is to go from out of New York into New York and then back out of New York, right? What is going to garner more suspicion, the guy coming back to danger or the guy coming into danger and then escaping it once he's he's got what he needs, right? Um, before we get into Townsend, there's a uh, there's one thing I want to mention, and that's that he was a Quaker. Uh, Quakers were pacifists, right? So he was he was troubled and didn't know whether or not he wanted to fight for the revolution. Uh, Riley will get into some of the things that he actually did. I'll get into a little bit of his backstory. Uh, he grew up in Setauket um, and in the, well, sorry, not Setauket, in Oyster Bay. And in Oyster Bay, the same colonel that actually went and tried to grab Woodhull, uh, he decided, that colonel, well, you know what, we're the British and I've got 500 soldiers and you guys have nothing because this territory was controlled by the British. He decided that they were going to winter in uh, Townsend's family home, right? And in doing so, they basically said, hey, we're coming and going whenever you please, or whenever we please, right? It doesn't matter what you have to say. They destroyed his family's orchard. They basically held them at gunpoint uh, and said you're going to swear allegiance to the crown or we're going to kill you right so you choose so he he was a pacifist right but he's also a pacifist that has eaten a whole lot of crap and he's kind of getting a little bit fed up with it and an influential thinker in the revolution who helped sway not only not only uh Townsend, but many, many others. And and some believe that, uh, I'm paraphrasing this quote, but there's a, a quote saying that without the words and the writings of the author of Common Sense, um, Thomas Paine, um, George Washington's sheath would have been raised in vain, right? And some of these words that inspired these men are, and I quote, these are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now, deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods, and it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. So now imagine you are oppressed by the British and... You know, you're, you you want to fight, but you don't have, you just don't have the courage. And 
then you, you read this or you hear this because, you know, literacy wasn't as rampant as it is nowadays. And this emboldens you. This this lights that fire within you that says, you know what? I am going to die for my freedom. And going back to Nathan Hale, actually, a little fun fact about him. It is said that some of his last words before being hung, um, I'm paraphrasing again because I have a terrible memory for quotes, apparently. Uh, but essentially, he said, what a shame it is that I do not have a second life to give for my country. Right. So that's that's kind of the that's the spirit that these men possess. Like, I'm getting goosebumps right now thinking, Dude. man, I wish I could go fight for George Washington. I would have right? signed like, up. If someone someone gives me that that letter and someone or someone reads that to me and I and I'm some eighteen year old kid or something like that, I, I would be all in. I would be like, Yes, sir, sign yeah, me let's up. Get some, let's right? go let's whoop get some. some British ass. So and I don't I, I don't know if that's because uh it's just so incredibly inspiring or if because as men we're just Neanderthals and we're just like like, you know, beating our chest, wanting to get after it, like just because that's how stupid men are. But uh, this this very letter and these these ideas from Thomas Paine you see so deeply rooted in America even today, right? The the basically like and obviously we can get into America today because it is just an absolute mess. And you know what? Let's just let's let's pretend that this yeah we're not we're not going to go there. But uh, like th- this this letter and the tenets of it, the freedom, the the liberty, the the fight against tyranny. I mean, you see this today with people rallying against things like the Second and First Amendment and why they want to protect their rights. It's it's so deeply rooted within the American cause that like it's it goes back to quite literally their foundations. It's not it wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a okay now we have our independence. What are we about? They this was what galvanized them to actually seek independence, right? So yeah. Um... And that's that's what uh, all this stuff is sort of what what turns Townsend because um, Townsend wasn't exactly like Woodhull where he didn't lose a cousin or anything like that and and Townsend's also in you know referencing what Thomas Paine said and referencing referencing these quotes and and what sort of created all these patriots it also comes down to the fact that the British are quite literally. They're, they're what they called lashing out the anti-British sentiment, which means that they're coming in and if you, and they think, they think that anti-British sentiment is so deeply ingrained in American culture at the time that the only way to defeat it is to beat it out of them, which is the most, it's the most backwards thinking ever. And we know that now seeing it fail time and time again. Oh, you don't like me? Yeah, it's like, it's like if some guy comes in and says, oh, you don't like me and then beats the crap out of your mom in front of you and go and then is like, yeah, you should like me now. (laughs) You know, bro, you're actually a pretty good guy. And I was kind of wrong. And you know what, mom kind of deserved that. So yeah, Yeah. let's I'm a loyalist now, right? Yeah. Oh, no, that's really compelling. That's a great (laughs) argument you made there, British guy. Um, The mom, the mom's like giving a thumbs up like, you know, yeah, she's getting her ass beat. This is what we want. Um, Yeah. Yeah, so Townsend, he he did a lot for the culpering. He he was essentially the primary informant. He would be the one who would uh, garner intelligence from a lot of what was going on in New York, and he would bring that to uh, he'd basically put it in the drop zone, the, the dead drop zone for Caleb Brewster. And uh, Caleb Brewster was a whaleboat captain, so he another another perfect example of a civilian with the right alibi and the right amount of courage to do what was necessary for the culprit to succeed. And sometimes it wasn't very extravagant; it was simply just ferrying a message across the Long Island Sound up to uh, Connecticut to then have it transported to George Washington. Right. So Townsend he. Whereas Woodhull initially gathered a lot of intelligence and sent it back, Townsend did the same, but he was more, far more embedded than uh, Washington was, or sorry, than um, Woodhull was. And uh, we'll, we'll eventually get into the big breakthroughs that the Culpering had. Um, 
because it's it's incredibly important what they did, but it was also short lived. They only were really in effective operation for two years, uh, but that that is a testament to the amount of success that you can find through innovation and warfare, right? Like if you if you're trying to siege a city and you're using stones versus somebody builds a catapult, right? Innovation and warfare, you take that twenty years war down to two, right? So even though their years of operation were shorter. Uh, and maybe there was, you know, there was less intelligence to gather once the, the tide had turned in the Americans' favor. The tide probably wouldn't have turned were it not for these individuals, right? Yeah, and, and it's really important because not only did what we're going to go into right now with, it was the increase of use of guys that were directly messengers, and that was their sole job. That allowed Townsend to maintain himself inside the, uh, in, sorry, it allowed Townsend to maintain himself inside New York, and it allowed him to really stay embedded. And as I referenced before, Townsend's living in the red light district. So he's probably seeing a lot of British troops coming in and a lot of guys being um, not at their best, probably partying, having a good time. And Washington has told him to stay in the coffee shops, stay in in, in random areas. And he's, he's, he's told Townsend to find out the specific units. He's told him to find out the specific units. And he's also told him to find out the morale of the army, navy, and city. And that's really important because British troops are getting deployed, not for six months, not for nine months. They're probably getting sent here for years at a time. And it's really important because if you're new, if you've just showed up and you're this brand new, fresh off the boat British guy that's ready to rock and roll, you're going to have a much different level of morale than if you've been there for four and a half years and you just want to go home. And that's how Townsend's going to exploit these troops, exploit his his buddies that are also getting sick of the war. And he's going to find out information. And then he's going to give that information to these two guys, Austin Rowe and Jonas Hawkins. And those guys are going to be transporting the information outside to Woodhull's farm. So as we said earlier, right now at this point in the story, Woodhull's scared crapless he doesn't want to he's not he's not doing any operations anymore but he's still facilitating operations from the rest of his guys and austin Rowe, jonas hawkins and caleb brewster are the three main messengers that are bringing townsend's information out of the city and delivering it to woodhull secretly so to give like a i guess an idea of how this would have worked uh Rowe was a he's a tavern owner in satoket so maybe townsend um, back to Townsend actually briefly, because this is important. Uh, whereas we saw with uh, Wood, uh, Woodhull, he declared allegiance to the crown and whatnot, kind of as a, a veneer for, hey, I'm, I'm with you guys, right? Like, like, don't kill me. Like Townsend just did that um, as a byproduct of what he was doing to garner information. So he he and along with a uh, another patriot uh, ran a newspaper. So he was a journalist and not just a he wasn't a journalist sitting there writing scathing reports on the British saying like these these crumpet these crumpet munchers and tea drinkers are terrible and what no he would have been killed right. He was sitting there writing you know God save the king God save the queen right glory to the British blah blah blah. He was writing pro British propaganda. They, they they never even expected him like they they or suspected him they never really had an inkling that okay maybe this is our guy right but what would, how it would work was Townsend would garner information he would drop it somewhere um, Brewster would then come pick up that information uh, he would ferry it across the Long Island Sound he would drop that information and then 
Anna Strong, who uh, Riley, I'm sure will she'll, he'll fill in in a minute. She essentially would hang up handkerchiefs. She was Woodhull's neighbor. She would hang up a handkerchief of different colors and a turncoat of different colors. Sorry, the handkerchiefs were all white. The turncoat was different colors. And that basically indicated to Caleb Brewster, hey, drop it in this cove. And then it indicated to one of the two messengers, hey, go pick it up here. So then Caleb Brewster would bring that intelligence over. He would drop it in a specific drop zone. Um as preordained by Anna Strong and Abraham Woodhull. Um, and then Austin Rowe would maybe pick it up, bring it to his tavern. Jonas Hawkins would come by. You know, he'd be having a beer and then at the bottom of his, in the bottom of his mug or whatever, I'm just speculating, there'd be a message. He would take the mug or he would say, all right, have a good night, right? And he'd get on his horse and he would ride to where George Washington was stationed and give him the message. Yeah, and and Austin Rowe, he covered over a thousand miles on horseback over the years of being a message courier, which is pretty intense. Um, Jonas Hawkins didn't really last very long, but he was the original messenger. And Anna Strong, she's living directly beside Woodhill's farm. So that's how that's how Woodhill's getting the information. Talmadge lives beside them as well. Talmadge is a neighbor of both of them. Yeah, which is yeah, something exactly. fascinating. Like, which they, is they, crazy they, that they're all just the, living in the, the same little neighborhood. The, <laughs> but. The, the, the very way that Woodhull actually became like became part of the Culper Ring was he he prior to joining the Culper Ring he was caught smuggling goods to the British right because by by a rebel patrol boat uh, he was imprisoned and then Tom Edge was like and this is where I get back to this is something out of a movie this is a James Bond movie or something man and. Woodhull had no inkling that Tall Madge was interested in him, but all of a sudden, uh, one day, he's released from prison. He's like, what? Excuse me? And he's going back to his house, and he's like, man, i got to get out of here. And he opens his front door, and there's Tall Madge sitting there sipping a tea like, I've been expecting you, right? And then they talk, and then Tall Madge is like, I'm sure you're wondering why you're out of prison. Well, I'm here to ask you if you want to join my cause. And this is where Nathaniel Woodhull, his cousin, becomes very, very important, because if you have somebody on the fence like that, somebody who's just scared, they're terrified, and as we see, Woodhull's kind of an anxious character right he's these these aren't like all of these guys they're not like they're not like navy seal like big brutish like you know we're gonna get after it you know like america first like these are just men and women like you and i who they're they're just trying to go about their day-to-day business they're trying to procreate they're trying to pay their taxes and then they die right and nobody wants to die too soon um so they're, they're not they're not these incredible superhuman fellows but what it speaks to is the incredible courage that can be uh i guess that, that humans can find within themselves when they have a cause, right? If you know your why, you can find any how. Um, and, and yeah, and so that, that's where Nathaniel Woodhull became important is because you could imagine uh, Woodhull, uh, Abraham Woodhull being on the fence saying, I don't know, man, this is kind of like, I could probably die. And then Tom Match was like, oh, die like your cousin, right? And then all of a sudden, now you have the culpering being born. What right? blows me away though, too, is like you said, for an entire winter, these British guys are living in Woodhull's house. And he's still yeah. operating this Townsend, spy ring. Ta- ta- Townsend's house. Sorry, Townsend's house. And they're still operating this spy ring while these guys are living here. That's like quite literally, you know, keep your enemies close. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know? Hey, hey do you guys and, need any blankets? Do you guys need like pillows? You're good? Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, just exactly. being hospitable, and, right? And Anna Strong's cool to me because they're utilizing a woman as um, her, her main role is to... Uh, she hangs her. She hangs this black petticoat. Did you go over this already? But she hangs this black petticoat up on her clotheslines, and that's how they can identify. Oh, there's a message for me. Oh, someone's showed up to deliver this message, or I got to come pick this up and and keep it going. And and then Woodhull's farm's right beside her. And what's cool about uh, Anna Strong is we know that there was another agent called Agent Three Five Five, and and Woodhull described her as being um, really 
a dependable source. And it could have been Anna Strong. We're not sure. We're going to get into that a bit later about Agent 355. She's a really cool character. And she's something that I, I was personally super interested in when we started researching this. Believe it or not, that was actually the the basis for this episode. Then all of a sudden, we uh, we're, we're just two Canadian dudes, right? Like we're uh, kind of like what I said at the beginning. We're not historians, but we love history, and we love what the story of history is, right? It's a tale, one that we all play a part of day in and day out. And Agent Three Five Five was one that caught our eye, and we're like, wow, this is fascinating, right? A woman spy in the 1700s, that seems unheard of, right? She must have been effective. Well, we started doing research into it, and it led to the Culper Ring, and, we, and then that Culper Ring led to the American Revolution, and then that led to this podcast, right? But uh, yeah, we'll fill you guys in on Agent 355, because what we do know of her, it's uh, this is where speculation comes in, and it's very interesting and fun to speculate, but uh, we don't know. Uh, as much about her as we do about individuals like Woodhull and Townsend. Uh, yeah. So we wanted ma- to kind of get to the we wanted to get to the 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 core of the culpa ring before we sort of hopped into the speculation, and we wanted to go over some of the important successes, which we'll, we can probably hop into now. Do you want to hop into the important successes? I did want to say one thing first, but Anna okay. Strong and Robert Townsend that I Let's found fascinating. So uh, there was a, a point where Robert Townsend was uh, I, I can't remember the specific reason, but he was outside Anna Strong's farm. Right. And it just so happened at this time that there was a British lieutenant coming by. Right. And now he had he had men with him. So he had options. Right. They could have captured him. They could have killed him. But what that would have led to was suspicion upon Anna Strong and all members in that community. Right. The eye of the British would have moved there. Right. It's like the eye of Sauron. Right. <laughs> Lord of the Rings. But instead and this is this is so clever and like it it just I can't stress it enough. It speaks to how crazy and incredible these these situations were. Is they simply pretended to be thieves. You know, the British officer, hey, get out of here. And then they ran off into the woods. And now crisis averted. That officer, he's patting himself on the back for a job well done, you know, taking care of people. Uh, doesn't suspect a thing, right? Um, which is just... Again, like it, it's almost seems like it was, it, I don't, I'm not a fan of destiny, but how many of these events, events culminated? Well, I mean, that's the story of history, right? As you could argue, destiny is the reason it occurred, but it's just, it's, it's human ingenuity. It's, it's human efforts. It's courage. And more than all of that, it's luck, right? So, yeah, I mean, Caleb Brewster, who we talked about a second ago, he like, he jumped this British officer and was about to kill him and then decided not to and pretended to be a highwayman just robbing him or something. You know, it's it's hilarious. This guy Caleb, bumps that's, into him. That's, Caleb that's Bruce, what I meant. He bumps into this British guy and he's like, your shit (laughs) sorry sorry my my language but he 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 just jumps him and then instead of just murdering the guy because he doesn't want he doesn't want woodhull to have any suspicion around him he just pretends he's a highwayman robbing him which is crazy to think that if i if i got to the point where i jumped a guy i would probably finish the job but brewster was thinking ahead he was he was a cool he was a cool character that's that's the that's who I was referencing. It wasn't Robert Townsend. Robert Townsend was in New York. It was Caleb Brewster while he was he was transporting a message. So yeah, it was it was Caleb Brewster, which is again, it's uncanny, right? Stud. Um, and so so all of this together, all of this came together, and it facilitated some Im- incredibly important successes that the Culper Ring was able to to um, to do. And one of these important successes is they discovered a British plot to ambush arriving French forces before they were able to recover from this arduous sea voyage. Coming from France to America wasn't a nine-hour plane ride like it is today. You know, this was a couple-month sea voyage, and the British knew the French were coming, and the British had established that they were just going to attack these guys right off the get-go when they landed before the French could recover from this sea voyage. You know, when you think about a sea voyage... You have to realize that these guys are going to be malnourished, tired, um, 
They don't have enough vitamin C in their system. Scary. And yeah, well, I just who knows how many are sick. And to be able to attack them right as they land would have been crippling to the French, who didn't it, even a death blow. who weren't even fully sold on the war. And being able to report to them that this was going to happen uh, saved that French unit, which if that French unit has landed and just got smoked immediately, we have no idea if the French would have even maintained to be part of the rest of the war. Because they could have just been like, ah, no, not for me. We just got obliterated the, the second we landed. And the French support for the rest of the war was incredibly important. Not only were they were they funneling a ton of supplies, they provided a naval force that the Americans didn't have. And they provided like 10,000 troops eventually once they, they decided that they were all in. And that could have all ended before it even started. Another important success that was discovered... Well, and the way the way that happened with the French was there was like once they they knew the French were coming, and once they knew that the British were were aware that the French were coming, they planted misinformation, right? So the the culprit,ing they somehow managed to get the right information to the right hands of the right individual, saying essentially that oh the French are coming, they're sailing to New York, they're going to attack New York, right? So what does the British do then? Because that's the British headquarters, they pull forces back to New York, right? So they basically. Whereas they had a defensible position where the French, the French, the, the French, French. The, the, the French, yeah, where the French were going to land, they could have smoked them, like Riley said. Well, now they're like, well, we need to protect our base of operations here, right? So they pulled back. That misinformation allowed the French to just walk right in, establish operations, and start getting after it, and that that completely turned the tide of the war, right? And that wouldn't have happened without for these incredible individuals in this culprit ring. Yeah. And then another thing that that Townsend discovers is he discovers this British plot to inflate the American currency. And what's insane is the British had figured out how to make exact replicas of the money that the Americans were using. And they would have been able to easily just flood the American economy with fake money, making the, the money useless. And then how are you going to fund your war with useless money? I'll pay you ten trillion for one contract. <laughs> yeah, you look at Zimbabwe, where it was their money was inflating so much that by at the start of the day, your money was going to be worth a lot less by the end of the day, and that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to inflate the currency. And if you don't know, man, almost all wars are about economy and about money. And long term wars, they if you don't get the money to pay for them, you're going to lose. And the Culper Wing was able to discover this plot to to inflate the American currency. Do you have and, any points on that? Yeah, the the, the cool like it, it wasn't it wasn't just uh, oh hey we've discovered this plot um, what do we do with it right they discovered the plot and then they and this is uh, kind of alluding back to the invisible ink thing something interesting about the invisible ink was that the creator of the invisible ink was actually the brother of the first chief justice of the Supreme Court right so these were important important people in the United States uh, I guess Congress right so. The Culper Ring had a direct line to Washington, who had a direct line to Congress. So they had their hands on the fate of this country, right? And with this information about the currency, they basically passed it on to George Washington. George Washington informed Congress. And what did the Americans do? It's very smart. They said, hey, that currency you guys just figured out, we're retiring it, right? Here's a new form of currency, right? And so they probably put in fail safes to ensure that, okay, the British aren't going to be able to recreate this the way we're creating it because we're doing something specific in in this uh I guess, in the, the generation of this currency, right? So it wasn't simply just the information, but it was the the after effects. And it just goes to show that like, this wouldn't have happened without the culpering. It also wouldn't have happened without the cooperation of all 13 colonies coming together and forming that Congress, right? 
to be able to again and at the start of the war the, the colonies were all vastly different a lot of them had different religions different political ideologies but funny enough the way humans work the one thing that allied them all together was the uh taxation without representation they basically said you're not taking our money we're taking our money right yeah exactly <laughs> that, that rallied their cause but yeah um, not only that but there was also the uh like you got to imagine, right? After the first and the second, so once that fleet arrives, right, all the, the British are probably thinking, well, how did they know that, right? And once the currency thing occurs, oh, how did they know that, right? So th- there's there's going to be a uh, an immense distrust amongst amongst comrades, right? Because if Riley and I were both British officers and we trusted each other, we'd been through a lot of battles, but now all of a sudden I hear from a, a distant whisper, well, Riley's the one who told this, this hot Agent 355 girl, uh, super cute, that uh, this is what... Uh, that we're doing with the currency, right? And I'm like, well, no, Riley wouldn't do that, right? And then you find out, and then somebody tells you, yeah, Ashton's suspecting you, right? And then you're like, well, no, why would he suspect me, right? And now that unbreakable bond of camaraderie that we had built through shared experience is now being severed because there are things happening outside of our control and people like to talk, people like to gossip, and that that decimated uh, trust in one another for the British officers. And if you don't have an operable officer corps, what do you have, right? That's your leadership. Those are the people who are making the calls that will, dictate the outcome of the war more importantly than did it did it distort trust between the british officers and each other it distorted trust between the british officers and the people that they thought were loyal to them so in insurgency wars what you actually have to do to have any success is you need to establish a network of locals that you can trust and work with Now, to have this unbelievably effective spiring in the midst of your city where you're trying to establish relationships with people and you're trying to you're trying to um, get more and more people loyal to the crown. Now you can't trust those people. So now every every time they're making a relationship with a new a new important American, they don't know if that American is actually a spy. So they want they're trying to establish relationships with people that are inside the city of New York and then. The, the culper ring has made it so that the British can't trust those people anymore. Not only can they not trust themselves, but they can't trust any people that they think are loyal to them. And that's going to make them even more um, vicious and violent towards the people of America. And every time we know that they're more violent and the, every time we, we know that they try to uh, impose any laws or taxes on these Americans, they're literally making new enemies. They're just, it's like, they're just, doubling them every time it's like cutting off a, uh, uh, the snake's head and then two more pop back on don't don't tread on me right like that's that's one of the american mottos right and like to, to to put it into i guess perspective right like you and this this is indicative of where the war was going because if you can't like how are wars won? decisiveness right no we're not going to put our troops here we're going to put them here we're going to have our cavalry attack from here we're going to do this and we're going to adjust as we need well in order to adjust as you need you need to be confident in your people you need to be confident in your ability you need to be confident in your ability to make decisions right but if now you're suddenly paralyzed from making a decision because every single time you endeavor to there's the risk that that decision gets leaked and you know now your plan is completely ruined and you got to start from scratch that happens one or two or three four more times and you're you're eventually you're just going to say i don't know what i'm doing here i don't know how to operate right so so what it effectively did 
what the Culper Ring helped to do is imagine the ship was going one direction, right? And that was the British winning the war. But then the Culper Ring kind of made them start turning, start turning, start turning. And as they were turning, the Americans righted their ship and they just rammed right through it, right? They 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 helped take the the ball is in was in the British court and now the ball is in the Americans' court, right? They helped basically they gave the initiative to the Americans to dictate what was going to happen through information, um, more so than like the Culper Ring's initial re- like purpose was like okay we're on the back foot here we need to get information to know when they're going to attack right but and they did that enough and they had enough strategic victories they got the reinforcements from france and now they said okay well now we don't need to wait to counterattack. we can go on the offensive right like we can start taking some of these territories back and that's exactly what they did yeah i dude personally if i was a british officer and i just all my plans were getting un- uncovered and i couldn't trust any of my buddies the effect that that would have on morale for myself and then what I can imagine the effect that would have had on morale for everyone else is that would have been unbelievably crippling, especially if you consider that these British guys are not American and a lot of them don't want to be there. And they're just like, why am I even, why am I even trying right now? Half these guys, they're not loyal to us. They don't care about us. They're just spying on us and and getting rid of our information. And it's making it impossible for the British to actually win any ground and have any consistent victories because morale is more important than anything a lot of the time. And it's crippling the morale. But then another crazy victory, and this one's super cool. is An important important note before we continue there on that is that like we're talking about the British soldiers having poor morale. Like some of these British soldiers were actually, they weren't patriots, but they were they were down for the American cause, right? Thomas Paine was English-born. He was born in Great Britain and then moved and died to died moved to and died in America. So there was this was around the Enlightenment, right? This is when there was a lot of classical liberalism. This is when there was a lot of Enlightenment thinkers, and they were coming up with these ideas of liberty and individual freedom and whatnot, uh, freedom from tyranny. So if you're a aristocratic or esoteric thinker who has all these great ideas. And now you see somewhere in the world where this is actually being put into practice, right? You're going to root for that, right? It's the same way, like, we, like, we, we, we cheer for it, like the little guy, maybe, I don't know if like, personally, if I see an economy in Africa that has been, that was under British colonial rule, and it was ruined by it. Now, all of a sudden, it's getting a stronger economy, and it's finding a, a system of government that works for them, and the people are happier and healthier, and they have more wealth, like, you want to see that, right? You want to see that freedom from tyranny and the, the growth of the population. So you had a lot of British people looking at the Americans thinking that they weren't thinking, no, we want to keep them under heel. That was mainly the British aristocracy uh, and royal royalty and parliament who felt that way because those are all people in positions of power and people in positions of power don't like their power being questioned right but the layman they looked at that and they're like yes right yes get away from the monarchy right because they've been suffering under that for so long 100 percent. you know uh in in the 1700s most guys serving in the british military were just they were just poor guys that didn't have any other opportunities it was not like militaries are nowadays where everyone not everyone i'm going to speak specifically for like North America, where almost everyone's a volunteer. And these guys want to be there. This isn't like the the war on terror where 95% of the soldiers that fought that war were motivated and wanted to be there. A lot of these guys were just guys that had no other opportunity. And now they're in America. And they're like, Oh, hold up, there's a ton of opportunity here. And this is a great cause. You're like, you're totally correct. You know, um, I, I would have been convinced. I wouldn't have wanted to go home if I'd established myself in America, even if I was a British guy. And so that's that's to go back to what we were talking about earlier about 
the distrust between officers is it would have been totally legitimate that officers decided they didn't like the crown anymore and decided to become American. That totally would have been happening. So it, it's, it's, there's no level of detail that we can go into to accurately explain how important um, creating a, a level of general distrust between the British ranks would have been. Um, especially especially because like you said some of it was genuine right it wasn't 100%. just it wasn't just rumors it was people who actually looked at this as what the americans or americas are branded as today but the land of opportunity right look at all this free space inland look at these frontiers we could go and start a farm there we could have our own business we could have this and that we don't just need to go and sift through the blood and the mud and the dirt and rain and die for a king that doesn't care about us right so yeah and then to, to move on another cool one is they discovered a high-ranking american officer subsequently identified as Benedict Arnold. He was plotting with this British major, John Andre, to turn over the, the American fort of West Point and just surrender its garrison to the British. If you're an American and you're listening to this, you probably know what West Point is. But if you're not an American and you don't know what West Point is, West Point now, to this day, is the probably most important American officer academy of the entire country, of the world's strongest military, so it's West Point, to summarize, West Point is the most important officer academy on the entire planet Earth. And it was almost just handed over to the British as this Trojan horse with uh, these two officers that were um, planning to, they, they were plotting to just give it back to the British, which is crazy. Can you imagine if West Point had been given to the British? <laughs> like, and, and the couple ring figured that out. The backstory on why uh, Benedict Arnold wanted to do this um you know people benedict arnold colloquially is like used it's like oh you're a benedict arnold you're a traitor right you, you backstab me but he he was actually a patriot at the start of the war he was an american war hero he had he had taken initiative and shown it um and won battles but what kept occurring to him is uh so this is this was a time in military where leadership was incredibly centralized right so you had horatio gates in the north who uh, and then you had his name eludes me in the south but you had these generals who we basically have a, you have to go and secure this objective, right? And they would take all the credit for securing that objective, even if it wasn't them who directly secured it, because they're the general, right? They're the guy in the big chair. Well, you had Benedict Arnold who saw opportunity and took initiative and won a few battles that the British didn't really, like that the British could have won, but he was smart. He outwit them. And he he took that command that was centralized and, and acted decentralized command and said, hey guys, because like, he he wasn't just a, a private. He was a, he was a captain, right? He was in charge of a, a pretty substantial amount of men. Um, but what kept occurring to him is he would win a battle, and then George Washington would be like, "Hey, great job, Gates! Great job!" Right? And Gates is like six hundred miles away. Like, yeah, yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, I did a great job, right? Um, and that that kept occurring to him. And then eventually, at one point, he was posted in Philadelphia, and. In Philadelphia, it was previously held by the British, uh, and when it was held by the British, the elites, the aristocratic class of Philadelphia, rubbed shoulders with the British, right? Because that's what rich people do, right? The, the, the British people are going to come there and say, well, we want to drink, we want to party, we want to dance, where are the rich people at? Who, who can afford this, right? Uh, and then they brush shoulders with them. It's kind of like, a, well, you know, if you win the war, I've got a great opportunity for you, right? Like they're trying to set themselves up. Well, British get ousted from Philadelphia, and here comes Benedict Arnold, and he's responsible for taking care of the city. Um, and so what does he start doing? Naturally, he starts partying with the rich. The rich, mind you, who were just partying with the loyalists, the British officers. So obviously, that's not a very good look for a high-ranking Continental Army officer, 
right? And so George Washington scolds him for it, basically slap on the wrist saying, this is unprofessional conduct, it's antithetical to our cause, etc. Um, and Benedict Arnold's been sent to his room and not getting pat on the head too many times that he's fed up. And he says, you know what, screw you guys, I'm going to, you know, like Cartman, screw you guys, I'm going home, right? <laughs> South Park, like, and home for him was the British. And he, uh, he went and he joined them and he started, con he was a co-conspirator with John Andre to take over West Point. And at the point when, uh, how, how they found out this plot was John Andre was actually caught. He was undercover and he was caught by uh, Continental Army men. And funny enough, they were actually going to bring him to, uh, they were going to bring him to West Point where Benedict Arnold was posted uh, to overlook him. But Benjamin Talmadge was in the area and basically said, there's something about this, right? And he, Benjamin Talmadge essentially, after they found this information, they held him for nine days. He didn't want to let him go out of his custody. So they held on to, uh, to John Andre and it culminated with his execution and the, um, I guess, pursuing Benedict Arnold because now the plot had been revealed, right? So it yeah. wasn't... Yeah. That would be a cool episode on its own, man, to go over those two guys. 100%, yeah. Cause, and John Andre, John Andre wasn't just a, a, a scrubby guy either, right? Like it, it was reported that Tall Madge, when he was on the gallows, shook his hand and spoke very highly of him, right? And this is the thing that a lot of people miss is like when you're the when you're the guys at the very top fighting the war, and this even happens today, right? Like when you're the guys at the very top, you hate each other. You're fighting for you're, it's, you know, like a like the the World War. There's a book on World War One, and this was a phrase used often on World War One with generals die in bed right men die on the field right and if you're if you're this if you're a man dying on the field and maybe you're a canadian and there's a german over there and you look into that german's eyes and you realize that he was just like you a farmer who got roped into a war he wanted nothing to do with right maybe he wasn't anti-semitic maybe he wasn't racist maybe he wasn't genocidal he was just a dude right and you were just a dude as well you're going to feel sympathy for him right you guys are in a way you're bonded by the conflict that you share that you're both a part of without your decision right and that was kind of the deal here with these officers obviously it's a little bit separate for officers but at that level it was more of a oh he was an intelligent man he was good at statescraft he like you know like if it was a game of chess it's like he made some good moves but i won right like good good game right like gg that's kind of what the the handshake was but it's uh worthy of note that um the Americans and the British, they, a lot of the people involved in the war did have an immense amount of respect for each other, right? But as in war, you can't let this man who just tried to beat you in almost one uh, significant uh, battle or taking over West Point, you can't just let him walk away because you like the guy, right? You need to do what you need to do. And that's where his execution came into play. And that's when they, you know, finished, finished off with Benedict Arnold and took care of that and secured West Point. And... Uh... And, and these are these are some of the important successes. There was a lot of other smaller successes, but we could honestly talk about it all day. At the end of the day, eventually, the war effort sort of outgrew the Culper Ring in a way. And George Washington, he stopped, he stopped using them as a priority. And as we covered earlier, he can't just delegate who knows about the Culper Ring. He can't just expose these guys to his next in command. So... As he sort of moves away from the needing the Culper Ring, you know, he's he's a busy guy. I assume that he had a couple things going on. And now As they're on the front moving, foot, right? They're not on the back foot, so they don't need that. Like, what are they get? What are the, what are the what's the Culper Ring going to say? The British are evacuating New York, and Washington's like, bro, I know, I'm marching like twenty thousand people there. Like, yeah, I can <laughs> see, know? I can see that. <laughs> yeah, um, and 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 also long term embedded espionage doesn't work if your enemies losing because you and can't the, there's moving, no long-term right? amount of information that you can gather so washington sort of moves away from the culpa ring he stops funding them 
and he he eventually disbands the unit. And that's kind of it, man. Like that's we could keep talking about it, but that's kind of it. And and we sort of wanted to hop into a couple fun facts that we can talk to you guys about. And one of those is Agent 355, who we talked about earlier. And this was a woman that worked with the Culper Ring. And as we as we covered earlier, Anna Strong worked with the Culper Ring. And it's, it's quite fairly assumed that it very well could have been her. But there was a lot of other women that were involved with the Culper Ring. You know, uh, notably Woodhull's sister, who lived inside New York. And then a plethora of other people that aren't even noted in history. Because as we said earlier, this is a spy ring. A lot of these people... There was a lot of people that were part of this spy ring that will never be known who it was. And, some, some suspect and, there was a, a woman in New York who, you know, her her family, kind of like what happened in Philadelphia and New York, it was being it was British held for so long that the rich people in New York, they were constantly partying with the loyalists, right? Constantly partying with the British, right? I say partying as a loose term, just, it just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, just, just fraternizing, right? And some people suspect that she was actually a patriot uh, embedded deeply with loyalists who could have possibly ferried information to towns in her woodhole. Um, but that's with a lot of these um, suspicions of Agent 355, there's not enough substantial evidence. And hey, maybe, honestly, maybe we'll find something out sooner or later because a lot of this information on the Culpering wasn't found out till 150, 200 years after the Revolutionary War. So that's that's how well these guys hit it, right? It's not like it's not like Agent 355 is there like, I am Agent 355, right? Like I, and then writes her name and everything because then the British walk into her home and they look at, oh, what is Agent 355? Culp- oh, okay, right. And now there is no Culpering in history because y'all, everybody got killed, right? Like, uh, yeah, I mean, the the only noted letter of Agent 355 is Woodhull claiming that by the assistance of a 355, my of my acquaintance shall be able to outwit them all. So he's he's just saying like, oh, with this woman, I'll be able to outwit them all, which to me is pretty damning that it probably was Anna Strong because she lived right beside him. So he's probably like, hey, come with me on this mission. Um, But it was it was suspected and Anna Strong didn't get captured. And it was suspected that Agent 355 eventually was captured. Which sort of sort of takes away from that that idea that it was Anna Strong. So there's lots of conflicting evidence, and this is where the fun of speculation comes in, right? So you know what would be fun too is if you guys know, email us at humanhistoriespodcast at gmail and then we'll talk about it in the next episode. Shameless so plug. Look at if that. you guys, if you guys do know any information about three five five, please let us know because we, you guys we, have we like, love the speculation about yeah, it. If you have like like Christmas cards with like you know like like leftover like Mastercards on them, and like I I haven't eaten in days, guys. Honestly, <laughs> so like. But no, back to the, the, the fun facts. One one thing, uh, this isn't so much as a, a fun fact as it is another one of my uh, my ramblings, but um, the British joining the war is a bit ironic. Um, they they helped the Americans fight against monarchistic tyranny. The uh, and Yeah, the French, sorry. And look what happened to them 10 years later, right? And, and, and the, the French Revolution, you could argue, was a lot worse for the people in charge than the British Revolution, than the American Revolution. I don't Revolution, think you could right? argue it. I think yeah. it definitely <laughs> it was. was right? yeah, the, the, <laughs> getting the, the guillotine the is guillotine, definitely right? a little bit yeah. worse. And, and one of the reasons why, um, kind of how Thomas Paine was a classical liberal, you know, freedom, individual liberty, uh, all of those things. Uh, the French shared those sentiment, but they were a lot more... Um, intense and the consequences for preventing that right let's put it like that because at the end of the war like the british walked out they just went right on up to, to canada up to back up to nova scotia and got on their boats and they're like all right guys see ya right 
Whereas the French, the French aristocrats, it wasn't like, all right, guys, you know what? You can have my my palace at Versailles. I'm just going to go hang out with the Dutch, right? There was no no such thing, right? So it's it's interesting to see how, like, you could very well argue that the efforts that the French put forth in helping the Americans um, fight the British, well, number one, that put their country in further debt after they had just recently lost the Seven Years' War. So the people probably weren't happy about that. But then their people are also watching like, like, hey, man, like, look what they're doing over there. Like, maybe we could take care of that, right? And lo and behold, it happened, right? Yeah, I mean, it's all it's all super cool stuff. And and just to put a little summary on it, just to go over some reflections about what I think about these individuals, I I think it's honestly super inspiring to see that these guys, you know, as... And girls. Quake, and girls, there you go, right? As Quakers... And as guys that didn't want to be on the front lines of combat still found ways to support a cause they believed in and risked unbelievable levels of danger to do so, to fight against a tyrannical government that was controlling them, is unbelievable, man. And it just shows that it doesn't take it doesn't take a freaking tank. It doesn't take it it just takes motivation and will to be able it, to to make a, a difference. A cause. Yeah, absolutely. And these guys had all those things in abundance. Just the motivation they showed, the resilience they showed. Woodhull, in my opinion, man, like Woodhull, he got anxious, he got scared, and he stopped going into New York. But did he even, did he take the foot off the pedal at all with the culpa ring? No, he didn't. He found a way to change the course. He found a way to keep the spy ring going without himself having to be in unbelievable danger, which it wasn't even working out anymore. He was going to get discovered sooner or later anyways. He adapted and he made it work. And it just shows it just shows in history how important these guys were to George Washington. It just shows how how priceless this information was. And 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 it shows how how much it's changed modern espionage, modern warfare, how we do things today. A lot of it started with this group of teachers in America figuring it out as they went and that's so cool to me and, yeah and one of the things that i like it, it i can't help but think this when you look at history as a totality is like there's so many of us humans right there are so many humans but there are so few of us who are exceptional right um everybody wants to believe they're special and exceptional but there are very few who are exceptional and as you said about woodhull and the risks he took and taking his foot off the pedal and finding new ways tall Madge as well to keep winning uh, the leader of all of this, George Washington, did the same thing. Like two years or a year and a half or so before the Culpering was founded, he it was it was on it was actually six days after uh, that quote by Thomas Paine was released, that pamphlet that it contained. He was sitting there in winter quarters like, across the Delaware River from Trenton, where the British had German mercenaries. He was holed up, and you know everybody's well. We don't fight in winter, right? All the British and all the German—they're partying, right? It was winter. Nobody's campaigning in winter. It's hard enough as it is in summer. Um, but he said, "No, like this is a cause worth fighting for." And desperation is is rampant through the ranks. People were leaving. Like at this point, the Revolutionary War—a year or two after it started—you had enlistment contracts drying up. You had militia men walking away. People didn't want to fight anymore. They thought the cause was lost, right? But it was due to an exceptional man taking uh, exceptional action. Uh, sailing across the Delaware River and marching nine miles south to Trenton and taking that town, that reinvigorated the American cause, right? A lot of people, that was on Christmas Day, mind you, Christmas Day, right? So he's he's saying it doesn't matter. Like these things are irrelevant at this point. Like we need to, we need to make a move. We need to do something. I'm not letting this die. And he took that initiative. He showed incredible leadership and he 
he pushed for the win, right? The the journey to just get there was, I think, I think it took them nine or 10 hours to cross the river in the middle of the night and march nine miles. Imagine how tired, cold, at, pissed at winter, off. winter yeah. time. Yeah. Imagine how miserable you'd be, but you still go and fight because you have your cause, right? And that's, you know, I'm not going to get too much into uh, contemporary, but like, how, how many of you guys do you think, could you say you have a cause, right? How many of you, is there anything in this life that would motivate you and galvanize you to do something that men and women of the past did, right? That's an important question. Uh, I, I think everybody should ask themselves because like we, we as humans, like there are exceptional people, but people can become exceptional, right? Some people are exceptional just by birth, but as we see with the Culper Ring, these are people who were farmers, they were teachers, they were merchants, and they found a cause, and through that cause and courage, they became exceptional. It wasn't something just bestowed upon them, like a, a, a celestial gift, right? Um, just some thoughts after after this incredible journey of reading, this incredible story that, again, seems stranger than fiction, right? Yeah, you have to decide to be exceptional. You have to you have to decide every day and keep going and do it over and over and over again. And that's what these guys did. And they adapted for years. They lived in complete uncertainty as to whether or not they were about to get caught and hung the next day. And their you know, families and all their loved everyone ones and their involved. friends, yeah. And and so you know, we thank you for coming on this podcast with us and coming on this journey about the Culper Ring. Um I had a great time. How about you, Ashton? Uh, honestly, I'm like this close to going and setting up cameras around my neighborhood and just like peeping on my neighbors. Not in like a <laughs> not in like a creepy way, but just you know, see if there's anything there. Right? I'm inspired. I'm inspired. Yeah. I've I've found my why. Right? Yeah, I've decided yeah. to go spy on America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, watch out. Yeah, tomorrow I'm coming. Yeah. Um. So no, I'm it was. Just gonna it go was. Over. It, it was. Sorry. It, it was. It was awesome. It was an incredible journey and. Uh, I hope I hope you guys, uh, whoever you are, guys and girls out there, and enjoyed the enjoyed listening. And I know I said it earlier, but I can't emphasize enough that the reason we're doing this is because we're just two dudes who love. Number one, we love stories, and what's the ultimate story? It's the story of us. It's all of us, right? History is not what occurred. It's not we we view it as something estranged to us that occurred thousands of years ago. We're detached from it, but we're living history right now. People are going to look back twenty years from now and look at the events of the to date this podcast, the COVID nineteen pandemic, etc. And I, I just I implore everybody to to have that in your mind when you're going about your day to days. Like you're not just you're not just a victim of history, and you're not a result of history. You are part of history and that should that should embolden you like that should make you feel wow like i'm living through the 21st century i'm living through these innovations i'm living through these medical technologies like and and of course there's negatives as well the wars around the world and famine and poverty but nonetheless it's all part of a bigger picture and personally i feel blessed to be a part of it and i find i find meaning in my life for the that for the sake of, I feel, I feel meaning and I feel connection to my ancestors and people who aren't even my ancestors, but who just share similar DNA to me by, by studying this story. And we hope that we can, we can bring you guys a bit of that excitement, a bit of that joy, a bit of that wonder that we find when through that looking through the mists of the past. Riley? Yeah. Well, we're just going to take this podcast and we're going to be focusing on really important people in history and sometimes people that wouldn't be considered important or aren't these big picture people, but still made massive changes and we, that's why we found that starting with this culprit ring starting with people that were genuinely in the shadows that genuinely weren't um, talked about on a grand scale um, was really important and just to really close us out here i'm just going to talk about how to support the podcast if you guys want to because we want to be making content as much as possible um, we're going to be scheduling every week and a couple ways to support the podcast is just to follow us on instagram twitter facebook 
YouTube, at Human Histories Podcast. And also email us at humanhistoriespodcast at gmail.com so that we can talk with you guys. And every once in a while, we're going to do an episode that's really specifically based on elaborating on old episodes and answering questions that you guys have about us, about the episodes we did. And then we can double check and we can go over places where we went wrong and we got mistakes and we'll be able to correct those mistakes. That's going to be fun for us. Uh, another way to support the podcast, if you really want to, is you can go to patreon.com slash human histories podcast and you can donate. Um, what we're going to be giving on the Patreon is just all the access to our notes and how and a bit of behind the scenes stuff, as well as a more direct way to communicate with us. And that's kind of it, man. More than anything, we want you guys to follow us and just enjoy the show and just get to be part of this um, journey. We go exploring into different parts of history, different humans in history of all different backgrounds. And 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 that's kind of it, man. I'm happy to end there. How about you? Yep. Thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, have a wonderful new year. Yeah. Take it easy.